Hello, and welcome to Knowledge Engaged, the podcast of the University of Nottingham's Institute for Policy and Engagement. The Knowledge Engaged podcast is an opportunity to explore with our researchers the work that they're doing and the difference it's making. I'm Stephen Meek, the director of the Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome Professor Chris Denning. Chris is Professor of Stem Cell Biology here at the University of Nottingham, and he's also the director of the university's new Biodiscovery Institute, or BDI. Chris was also instrumental in setting up the university's asymptomatic COVID testing service. The conversation with Chris covered both testing and also the Biodiscovery Institute, and in particular research culture within it. We've divided the conversation into two parts, and this first part focuses on the asymptomatic testing service. So, Chris, welcome to the podcast. And before we talk testing, it'd be good to hear a little bit about your research. Well, first of all, thank you, Stephen. It's uh, it's a lovely introduction and lovely to be on this. I've got an awful lot of respect for how you do. So I started my days out uh, even as an undergraduate, and that was about trying to understand how viruses worked in different ways. And that then moved on to a PhD where I tried to use genetic therapies to, to tackle cancer. So this is the idea of introducing a gene that essentially causes the cancer to commit suicide. And then that moved on to to the area of cloning. And I moved across the Roslyn Institute where they made Dolly the sheep. Mm. And we started to to generate animals that would be resistant to to things like mad cow disease or scrapie. And then that led into stem cell biology where we're now trying to understand why the heart goes wrong, either genetically or because of its interaction with drugs. Now, they might sound like very different aspects going from virus to cancer to cloning to stem cells and then heart. But the thing they all have in common is they all rely on the manipulation or understanding of genetics. And so what we do a lot of is we manipulate the genetics of different systems so we can understand them better. So taking an example just now in the heart, we take skin cells from humans with diseases that affect the heart genetic diseases that affect the heart. We then coerce those skin cells into becoming stem cells, and then we can coerce them again into becoming heart cells. You start with skin, you end up with heart cells with the same genetics as that individual. And then you can manipulate the genetics in that cell to understand why that cell went wrong or how to correct it and so on. So I kind of push genes around a little bit for for the greater good, as it were. Yeah, that's really interesting and fascinating about the way in which looking at genes has that applicability across so many areas and so many, you know, for a lay person like me, it's hard to see the connection and how, you know, as I was looking through your biography thinking, well, how can, you know, how can Chris have worked on so many different areas of disease and illness? But that's, that's absolutely fascinating. So I'd like to turn now to the COVID-19 testing service you developed. And it'd be really helpful just to hear a bit about the history, how that came about. I mean, it it wasn't as if you were short of things to do when COVID hit. Yeah, this is a really, really interesting story and, and just full of irony. I've been I've been very open in the past about my own mental health issues and how how they've influenced anxiety and depression have influenced the the darkest and the the deepest parts of my life. And the irony of this is that if those dark dark areas hadn't happened in my life, 
then the COVID testing service probably wouldn't have occurred at all, which arguably is one of the proudest moments of my life. And the reason for that is that in January 2020, after spending a year plucking up the courage to, to write a blog as the, as the director of the Biodiscovery Institute around my journey with mental health and how I tried to, across the years, turn it from a perceived weakness into what I firmly believe is a strength. Um, I published this blog, and at the time we were trying to to look towards the the launch and the celebration mm-hmm. of the Biodiscovery Institute. As as one of the groups of people, we wanted to contact Wellcome Trust, and I was told at the time, look, if you want to get somebody senior from Wellcome Trust, there's no way they're just going to drop everything to come to your your opening event. You need to do something different. Now, the Wellcome Trust, literally a week after I published my blog around mental health, published their superb report. On, on research culture and the importance of it. So I wrote to them to congratulate them on that because I thought it was so good and said, you know, if it was interest to them, then this was my blog and hopefully that might be useful and they, it would be great if they could attend the launch event to to contribute on research culture. So that was all good, good and they, they actually agreed. They had one of their most senior people who was going to come to the research event. Of course, they got postponed because of COVID, but it'll still go ahead later this year. Now, the irony of that was that was all fine. COVID started up and I got an email from Jeremy Farrar, who's director of Mm -hmm. of the Wellcome Trust, saying, Dear Chris, I seem to have lost the email address for uh, some of the senior people at the University of Nottingham, including John Afton, who would have been the person I go to on this. And so could you do me a favour and forward this letter to, to John? And it was basically a direct call from the government via welcome to, to get um, machines, PCR machines, mm-hmm. to, to then start to basically create these mega testing labs around the country. So I forwarded that on to, to John. There was a little bit of toing and froing very quickly, you know, within a matter of hours. And John said, yes, we want to support this. And I kind of seemed to fall into the the role of, of trying to coordinate getting all the PCR machines together. So I reached out across the, the university. We got all of these items together. We sent them down. They started setting up the, the testing labs. And so... That's actually how we got into it in the first place, which I you know, had an amazing pride in this. And like I say, there's that irony that if it hadn't have been for that odd journey through mental health, sharing it with Welcome Trust, them contacting me because they had lost John's email address and so on, none of that would have happened. But anyway, it did. And so after the Mega Lab started to get founded, it was clear that this was going to be a monumental task. And I, I started to realize that the numbers that the government was saying that they wanted to hit and wanted to reach were going to be extremely difficult just to go completely off the bat from these Mega Labs. Mm-hmm. So back in around April 2020, I made a suggestion to the university that we could do some of this testing to supplement the, the efforts of government. That went to the university. Initially, they were hesitant about it because, first of all, asymptomatic testing was not being supported by government. And more than that, they said, look, you know, do we really want to get involved in this? Which, you know, completely fair comment. Mm. But anyway, a week or two later, Kevin Shechev came back to me because I'd written to him, John Atherton and Jessica Corner about this. And Kevin came back and said, well, hypothetically, if we were to fund a short pilot period of, say, a month, to to do some of this work would you be involved and what would your remit want to be and I said well at the moment we're hearing about a lot of shortages from the NHS testing labs and that's creating bottlenecks which is why testing isn't going to be able to done and 
that was when we were hearing lots of things about there are shortages of chemicals and mm. there are shortages of this, that and the other. And so we contacted our NHS colleagues and certainly they confirmed all of this. These, these were all serious issues for them. So anyway, Kevin got that approved and we got a seed corn fund of £10,000 to set up a pilot. So I put out an open call across the BDI and other areas of the university to say, interested in this pilot call, need people who are highly experienced, highly engaged, would you like to step forward? So set up a team of eight people. We then start to do this testing completely in collaboration with the NHS Path Labs to look at the pinch points of their process, which we did. And we started to come up with solutions that were completely distinct with what the government uh, testing labs were doing. So it was not in competition. It was completely additive. That went exceptionally well. And by the end of that four or six week period, we uh, we put out open source information um, that, that could be accessed widely. And then we published work around that. That then helped seed the vet school pilot, which Jonathan Ball was interested in leading from the vet school uh, point of view. And again, that was very successful across the summer months because the vet school students were the very first to return back last June. If I had to pick out one point that was the absolute highlight of that, it was the fact that by the asymptomatic testing, so bear in mind the government was still focusing purely on symptomatic testing, we were doing asymptomatic testing. We started to identify cases where people were infected but they weren't showing symptoms and therefore they could be the spreaders and so we are then able to isolate those individuals and therefore break those transmission chains so i think for me that was absolutely critical so putting these two things together the fact that we could do the testing we could help the nhs and we could start to break transmission chains i then worked with alex favier who's who's now moving on for a little while but he was he was in the uh, politics area and so we started to work with him to to try and work with the government across the summer Mm -hmm. last year to say actually asymptomatic testing is tremendously important we contacted six different government departments all of whom said no 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 no, it's not not of interest at all we don't want to do that it's just a it's just a sideline and it's just an inconvenience don't do it But nevertheless, we soldiered on and we put proposals to the university who naturally initially were nervous. But then after discussion, they started to get to a position where they thought, actually, this could be very useful for our returning students in September. So on the 2nd of September, they gave us the green light to to set up the COVID asymptomatic testing service for the university and said, but the proviso on this is we need it up and running by the 28th of September. So there we were given just over three weeks from essentially empty labs of people, equipment and everything to go from zero to go to 100 percent, at which point several people said, Chris, this is impossible. You can't do it. But that's where the research culture comes in, because if you've got people who buy into an idea and have belief in what you want to do, they will move heaven and earth to make it happen. And that's essentially what happened. Mm-hmm. So went back to some of those same people who helped out back in April. They jumped at the task. I then I think, again, critical point from me. I said, you're the core group. I don't want to recruit people. I want peers to recruit peers. Your PhD students, your postdocs, you know who's good, you know uh, what you need, you do it. So we started to do that. They then essentially, by empowering them, they built the service. And we were running tests by the 28th of September. Small numbers to begin with, but that escalated quickly. And it all comes down to this, this whole ethos of you build the team from within 
and you empower those people and you give them belief. People were making things happen by the hour. And it was extraordinary to see this this happening. And that essentially is, is how we got to it. So we then ramped that up. We did the testing. We've widened it out. We're now testing staff, students, testing beyond. And later on, I'll tell you about some of our initiatives to try and go beyond the university as well. That's such an inspiring story. And, and I think, I mean, well, I want to come back to the issues of research culture and what you're trying to do with the BDI and, and, and your very honest account of, you know, the, the, the series of accidents that got you into this. But I mean, one of the things that particularly interesting is that persistence, that sense that actually it is the asymptomatic testing is the right thing to do, despite what everyone is saying. And to be able to do that and to carry people with you at a time when, you know, the university, all the people around you coping with, you know, what on earth does it mean to be in lockdown, to be home working? I know there were all sorts of constraints on finances and so forth, when the easiest thing to do would be to say, oh, well, it was a nice idea, but let's go back just to, you know, to, to sort of making business as usual happen in a very unusual environment. And I'm particularly interested in why why it was you felt that it was so important to pursue asymptomatic testing in the face of, of, of a general sense that actually, no, 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 that doesn't matter. So actually, you know, I'm, I'm a remarkably simple person and I'm, I'm very... I'm very practical. My dad was an extremely practical person. When I moved into my current house, it was kind of a relic from the 1970s. I gutted it. I did almost everything myself from, you know, the central heating to the underfloor heating to everything. And I've always prided myself on being sort of simplistic and practical. And when I look at this, this is just, it's like any other problem. You just need to break it down to its component parts and then just apply the best common sense. And for me, this was just a simple common sense matter. It's like the old old adage of, you know, what do you do if you leave the barn door open? Do you rush out there and try and close the door or do you let all the horses run out and then go, OK, now what should we do? And and to my mind, it's like get out there and close the barn door and and then then you can make your decisions later down downstream. And that's essentially what what we wanted to do. We wanted to be in a position where you identify those cases as early on. And bear in mind, because we are using PCR rather than newer techniques of lateral flow and so on, PCR is so sensitive, it can pick people up before they even know that they're going to get sick. And so it's it's all a question of, you know, prevention is better than cure. If you go out there and you start to identify a population of people who are suddenly showing up positive for the virus, and yet they're not showing symptoms yet, it makes common sense to take them out of the population pool, let them recover, and then you've broken that transmission chain. I think a lot of the resistance in not doing this uh, to begin with by the government was a lack of understanding. Um, they were panicked by the fact that they didn't have enough resources available to do the symptomatic testing. But I think that's where the mistake is. It's if they had had the right people in the room having those discussions at that time, then they would have realized there was plenty of capacity to do the symptomatic testing that they wanted to do. But they could have easily reached out to a university base, mm-hmm. uh, all of the universities who had this capability, and said, OK, if we spread it out amongst the universities, then we could do, you know, we could do a million tests a week for the sake of argument. And we could use alternative technologies that aren't going to compete. No, it's really interesting. And a reflection, you know, back from my time uh, in government, there's often a tendency to think, well, 
you know, at times of crisis, you've got to centralise, you've got to hold things sort of close and not to trust other people to do it or to devolve or to delegate and stuff. And sometimes that can be the right thing to do. But often, actually, what you're saying is, well, we might do it badly, but we can't guarantee that other people, you know, because we can't be sure how other people will do it, let's just do it badly ourselves. And I think the way, who knows if we will have a um, an inquiry into all this, I'm sure we will someday. But I think that, you know, the issues around not using local public health expertise, not using universities will be seen as an error. I mean, I think it's important to emphasise how difficult the series of judgments was. Again, thinking of my time in government, how difficult the series of judgments was. And there were bound to be errors. But I think that's interesting. And, and so the fact that you persisted rather than saying, OK, you're not interested is is a sort of credit to you. Thanks again to Chris, and thank you for listening to the Knowledge Engaged podcast. Join us again for part two, when Chris and I will talk about the Biodiscovery Institute. You'll find a link in the notes to the show to find out more about the Institute, upcoming events, blogs and podcasts.